0: Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 7, is where we'll be today. I think what I'll do is read verses 7 through 11 and then open with a prayer. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you for the word... That you've given us, that we have this revelation from you preserved for us, the imperishable seed of the Word of God. Lord, help us today as we look into your Word to see what it is that you have for us, to make application to our lives by your Spirit's power, and to grow closer to Christ, to become more like Christ because of the time that we spend here today. Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your Word this morning but that you would make your word clear to your people, that you would anoint me to preach accurately, to teach accurately, for your honor and glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, perhaps some of you have heard the phrase or made it a phrase to live by, like I kind of have. Uh, I got this from my dad. You get what you pay for. Heard that one? Live by that one? <laughs> And in uh, many cases, nearly all cases, that's true. But there are some cases in which that is not true. Let me illustrate. Um, I've got here something that gets handed out for free to a lot of people. Real thin, what is this, like maybe a sixth of a sheet of paper, an eighth of a sheet, um, with simple print on the front and back. The title of it is, What It Means to Be a Christian. And it walks you through, God is sovereign creator, God is holy, mankind is sinful, sin demands a penalty, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and it describes the character of saving faith. These are free. You want a hundred of them? I'll get you a hundred of them. They're free. Okay. Look at this book. This is pretty neat looking. I mean, look at that. That's impressive, isn't it? See how thick that thing is? Very thick book, nearly a thousand pages hardcover. You could drop this in a shallow puddle, and it'd be okay, you know. Um, The title of it is Jesus Christ's Message to All Nations, Second Edition. That is intriguing. It uh, came, I don't know where I got this. I have a lot of interesting books. Um, Not quite sure where I got this one. I know where it came from initially, but it's got a, a price sheet for some of its books, and this one will run you $25, You want to hear from Jesus, it's 25 bucks. And instead of walking you through how to be a Christian based on the Bible, it says stuff like this, let Arizona know that my judgment cometh. Earthquake and sinking in the earth shall be on the capital city there. Idaho shall be as a melting fire of such powers and it'll cleanse my land of all evil. Let Seattle know there cometh a shaking and tidal wave upon her. On and on it goes. Do you get what you pay for? (laughs) Okay. One runs you, well, today, what, like a quarter of a tank of gas. The other one is free. And let me tell you, you're going to be helped. You're going to be edified. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to know your Bible more through this free, unimpressive sliver of paper. Well, in uh, Corinth, they had this view that you get what you pay for when it comes to teachers. And if a teacher is free and unimpressive, what good is he? Yet, if there's one who comes along who's very polished, very impressive in his speech... And charges an honorarium, you know, it kind of ceases to become an honorarium at that point, I guess. It charges a speaking fee, he must be good stuff. And Paul found himself in the middle of conflict with the Corinthians because he charged them nothing. Paul was a free speaker, and Paul was actually not the greatest speaker in the world. He stumbled over his words a lot, he wasn't a very impressive speaker. And there were false apostles who came in after him who charged the Corinthians money. You want us to speak on a Lord's Day morning? You know, that'll run you a certain number of shekels, you know. And they were very good. You know, they would probably wear nice clothes, and they would use illustrations no one had heard before and make connections that no one had seen before. And dare I say it, they would have revelations from Jesus that no one had ever heard before. And one seemed much more impressive than the other to the Corinthians. So the passage I just read, verses 7 through 11, you have Paul trying to reason with the Corinthians about how this view isn't good, this this standard that they have, that they're applying to teachers, it isn't good. And I'm going to actually expand this out this morning, not just comparing true apostles and false apostles based on that standard, but we're going to look at different qualities that the Apostle Paul brings up through this passage that I think apply to all servants. Or you could even say all people. How do you know what the marks of godly servants are? What do you know, how do you know how to identify a, an evil servant, a servant of Satan, a term that Paul uses in this passage? How could you identify someone who's a true friend based on the Bible versus someone who's actually your enemy based on the Bible, someone who actually hates you? There are some obvious ways of recognizing that. You've lived a life, you kind of know. But the Bible here is going to give us, I believe, two marks of each that we can look at in verses 7 to 15. So let's look again at verse 7, where Paul asks them this rhetorical question, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I think just in that verse, we see two of these marks. The first mark that we can see here is that godly servants sacrifice for the benefit of others. When you're you're thinking of what's a true godly friend or who's a true uh, godly minister or a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a true servant, a godly servant will sacrifice for the benefit of others. And this was especially exemplified early on in the church in these pioneer missions that Paul was involved in. Paul would take the gospel to a new place, a place that had never heard about Jesus before, and he would go in and try by God's grace, to establish a church, that people would come to know the Lord Jesus, and that they would then form a church, He would train up leadership, and He would go off to the next city. You know how many obstacles there are to doing that? Especially if we go back 2,000 years, the lack of technology that they had. So much about it is difficult. And one of those major obstacles, of course, is money. There would be many religious people who would come to these places and try to get something going, and it would actually end up being a racket. There would be an income stream set up for the person doing this, that money would flow to that person, because this person is a man of God, or leading the people to God with his novel ideas. Well, Paul here, in his pioneer missionary efforts, was doing all that he could to remove obstacles from people that they would just see Jesus That's what the Apostle Paul wanted, was for people not to get hung up on anything else. As far as it depended on him, he wanted people just to see Christ and the glory of God in the gospel. And so he says here in verse 7 that what he did among them was to humble himself that they would be exalted. This is a mindset of meekness, a mindset of lowliness, the mindset of Jesus, isn't it? He humbled himself greatly. We just read, uh, or sang in that last hymn, the ground quakes as its maker bows his head. The maker of heaven and earth and all it contains, the owner of the universe, died on a cross, bowed his head and breathed his last. Talk about humility, right? That's the ultimate example of humility. And so this is a a lowliness, a meekness that Jesus himself had that Paul was exemplifying among them in his way of not accepting pay from them. Now, Paul did have a right to payment. Paul was worthy of payment because of his service among them. He explained this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, Do I not have a right to financial support? A laborer is worthy of his wages. But he forwent that payment. Paul, you could say, was worthy of honor. He was a true servant of God who sacrificed so much for the sake of the believers in Corinth. But he didn't demand honor. He didn't demand pay. He was removing those obstacles. He never sought it for himself. And this, of course, is a reflection of the gospel. If you look back just at chapter 8, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians, this idea is right there. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Sacrificing for the benefit of others is the heart of Christ-like love. What is the love of Jesus that can then be brought about in your life and your interactions with others? Sacrificing for the benefit of others. Being humbled for the lifting up or the edification of others. It's about humility. But also here, we see Paul was proactively caring for this church free of charge. It wasn't just, uh, you know, that he was humbling himself, but he was really emphasizing through this passage that he did this free of charge. It was it's not something he, he demanded payment for. And I'm a, a pretty firm believer that gospel ministry should always be free of charge. In fact, I, I just cringe at the things that Christians charge other Christians for. I, I kind of think we've stopped thinking about it. And there are some uh, helpful resources out there that help us rethink these things. When you consider what's going on, that the ministry that's taking place, Christians charging other Christians, I, I, I'm, I've gotten very uncomfortable with that. But we think back to Christ's instructions to His disciples Freely you have received, freely give. They did not go set up a big concert or a big conference and charge people money to get in. It didn't happen. It never never happened. That wouldn't be freely giving anymore. That would then be making money off of gospel ministry. So that's His principle. But He did give His disciples, Jesus gave his disciples even more information on this and how they were to conduct themselves. In Luke chapter 10, this will be up on the screen for you, Luke 10, starting in verse 4, he told his disciples, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be on this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. And catch this, verse 7, Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. So they were to go and not demand any payment to be to offer their ministry. They were to minister to everyone free of charge. But there's also this concept where a laborer is worthy of his wages, and that he would be taken care of by those who are receiving that ministry. Not as a prerequisite for hearing the gospel. Not as a prerequisite of being encouraged in the gospel. Or to receive their teaching, but it was just a a principle of how this was to go about. Yet Paul even waived that. It seems as though when Paul was in Corinth, he didn't stay with them in someone's house. He didn't take any of their food. He didn't drink any of their drinks. He was a tent maker by trade or a leather worker, so he probably spent all day working with his hands. And then when he had time, Uh, To fit in in between all of that, he would give his time to the Corinthians, and he would do so absolutely free of charge. Well, the Corinthians just did not understand that. The Corinthians were they were Greeks. Paul, if you're an apostle, if you're a great teacher, why are you making tents? What 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 do thinkers have to do with their hands, after all? C.K. Barrett in his commentary says, "It is a manifestation of the gospel itself. Paul's sacrifice." Because it reflects the voluntary poverty of Christ, which makes others rich. But of course, it will be misunderstood. Humility and self-sacrifice often are, especially by those who do not themselves frequently practice them. So true. So the false teachers in Corinth turned Paul's sacrifice into a negative. They used their honorariums that they would receive from churches as grounds to boast. You can just imagine these false apostles back in the green room before they enter the stage. How much did you get out of Corinth last week? You know, let's compare paychecks here. That was what they were doing. They were getting money and boasting about how much they were being paid because however much you were being paid, that's how good of a teacher, of course, that you were. They likely said that Paul didn't give his best to the Corinthians because he's preoccupied with his tents. Well, Paul was actually free from the love of money. And I love this in verse 12 of this passage. He was happy to keep this contrast up to show that he was free from the love of money. He says, what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. So these people who come along boasting, I'm an apostle of Christ, I'm an apostle of Christ. Oh yeah, well, will you serve them free of charge? Will you? wash their feet? Will you humble yourself so that they may be exalted? And of course, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do such a thing. So Paul did not receive support from the Corinthians, but he did receive support from somebody. Look back at verse 9 with me. It was from the Macedonians. He said, when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. I almost get the feeling that he hesitantly accepted their support, but we don't know that for sure. We just know he did accept their, their support. The Macedonians were exemplary in the way that they did this. Because let me tell you something about the Macedonians, they were poor. Out of the churches that Paul planted in the different regions that, that he went about planting churches, the Macedonians were poor. And yet... Here they come with this gift for Paul because they wanted to support Paul when they heard that he had a need. He also talks about this in Philippians 4. If you were going to jot down a cross-reference, that would be a very appropriate cross-reference, that Paul was so just blown away by their love that even in their poverty, they would go out of their way to support him. He even says here in this passage that he robbed them. It says in verse 8, I robbed other churches. I took wages from the poor people in order to serve you rich people, you Corinthians. He took support from them even though they were poor. And they were showing, again, some of that exemplary care. What we're talking about here is that godly servants show themselves by sacrificing for the benefit of others. And that's exactly what the Macedonians were doing, wasn't it? Even though they were poor, even though they just had maybe this, tonight's dinner in the fridge and that was it. They were willing to, to give to Paul, to show themselves to be true servants. Well, another item, as we think about caring for one another free of charge, another thing I want to present to you is, again, this idea that true sacrificial service does not demand payment, and sometimes true sacrificial service won't even accept it. Because the Corinthians were viewing this as a bad thing for Paul, that he wouldn't accept an honorarium, I kind of get the the feeling here that the Corinthians were trying to give him money. They they thought it was good that the speaker would receive money, so I imagine they were trying to give him money, and he just flat out refused. You know, there's a saying out there that is true in many cases, but it's not always true, that if if you deny somebody the gift they're trying to give you, you're actually kind of Hindering them from experiencing the joy of God. Because there are some people who have been given the gift of giving. They find their joy in serving God's church by by being giving people. And when you, perhaps in some pride, say, Oh no, I don't need that, and you don't accept their gift, you could actually be damaging their walk with Christ because they're trying to exercise their spiritual gift. Well, in this case, I don't think Paul was damaging their walk with Christ when he refused the gift they were trying to give him. Instead, Paul was demonstrating to them that he was a true servant, unlike those who demanded payment for the gospel. The point is that Paul was not interested in creating a burden for those who were supposed to benefit from his ministry, and he was very interested in making a contrast between himself and the false teachers. Caring for one, another's, or one another freely and doing so of your own initiative really is powerful when we care for one another proactively, free of charge, laying down our lives, sacrificing for one another that the other person would benefit, be built up, be edified, that is powerful love, isn't it? It's the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel, the love that's found in the gospel. Not our doing of that work is the gospel. I don't want to confuse you, but that's a reflection of what Jesus did for us in the gospel. Well, as we think of a second mark of God's servants, a second mark of a true friend, you could say. I think we do find it all the way back in verse 7 when Paul says, I preached the gospel of God to you. So not only was he sacrificing his life for them, but what was he doing that for? He, He was doing it toward the end of preaching the gospel of God. So we could say that godly servants, a mark of godly servants is that they show their faithfulness both in truth and in love. Drop down to verse 10 with me again, and let's look at these two verses. Look at where truth and love show up. He says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. Paul said that he was going to continue keeping himself from being a burden. He was not going to charge people money for his ministry. He was going to keep on doing that, and he says in verse 10 that he would boast in that. And he's not boasting because, oh, look at me, I'm doing this free of charge. He's boasting because, look at what God will do with something as unimpressive as a slip of paper like this. Look at what God will do for something that's free, for something that's just not very remarkable to the world. Look at what God will do with one who is foolish and weak in the world's eyes. He's going to continue to boast in the faithfulness of God, using His truth to reach people through humble servants. And all that he did as a servant, a true servant of God, was rooted in truth and in love. False teachers were freely serving out of hate, or rather they were charging money to serve out of hate. They were claiming that Paul was serving out of hate. He says, am I charging for free because I do not love you? Again, look at verse 11. Am I doing this for free because I do not love you? And then he calls God's knowledge in, and he says, God knows that I do. These false apostles who were charging them and then slandering Paul, they were not to be listened to. Instead, they were to trust God that this humble servant was delivering the truth to them. Paul was that friend that the book of Proverbs talks about. In Proverbs 18.24, it says that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Paul was a true friend to these Corinthians, wasn't he? Even though they weren't reciprocating, even though they weren't showing him true godly friendship, he was showing them true godly love. The truth of Christ was in him, he said in verse 10, and he had the love of God for them. So those are marks of a godly servant. But on the other hand, we also have marks of Satan's servants. Verses 12 to 15 outline these people. Let's read this again. Paul says, What I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. What a fascinating passage that is. Let's uh, let's get into that. Marks of Satan's servants. Number one, we can say that Satan's servants boast in themselves. Did you catch that in verse 12? They want to boast. This is because ultimately they worship themselves. Those who are ungodly servants, those who are actually your enemies, those who are servants of Satan, they are their own gods. At the end of the day, they have become their own gods. They worship themselves. And there are different ways that you can spot this in people, not that we should go around you know, looking for Satan's servants or anything like that, but as we consider how this plays out, these are the types of people whose conversations are always all about themselves, People who always want to make themselves the heroes of their own stories. They set you up for a story and then describe how awesome they are because, you know, they did everything right. They're God, you know. People who develop relationships with others that are based on you thinking something about them. They want to be exalted in your eyes. They want you to lift them up and to worship the ground they walk on. These are people who are motivated by self-willed pride. Think about that situation in Corinth. How obvious would it have been which side was motivated by self-willed pride? The guy who's sacrificing everything just to be there to preach the gospel of God to them? Or the people who are charging for their speaking fees and giving them a different gospel? We looked at that last week. Another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. It's pretty clear. It's embarrassingly obvious where the lines are drawn. Paul was willing to humble himself, and they weren't. So just a a quick mark of a servant of Satan is someone who boasts in himself, someone who worships himself. But a second mark, the one that we'll dwell longer on, a second mark of Satan's servants is that they lie. Satan's servants lie. And they do this ultimately because they hate you. Why would why would Satan's servants lie to you? Because they love you? No, because they hate you. Again, the book of Proverbs, this is chapter 26, Proverbs 26, 28. I just love how simple this makes it. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. A lying tongue hates those it crushes. What's going on? What are the mechanics when someone is lying to somebody else, you're lying because you care about yourself more than you care about the other person. You love yourself more. When you give someone truth, even if it's a hard truth, even if it's a truth with consequences for yourself, but you're willing to go there because it's truth, that's love. But trying to protect yourself, trying to cover your own tracks, Looking out for number one, as it were, is a sign that you actually hate the other person, and that is a mark of Satan's servants, not God's servants. Look at this list that we get in verse 13. The servants of Satan are false apostles, deceitful workers who disguise themselves. Paul says they are false apostles. This is a word that Paul made up. There are lots of words like that, where it's just a a compound word that Paul put together, and we don't see it anywhere else in the Bible or even in history. And it really is just taking the word pseudo and putting it with the word apostle. It's a a word that's called pseudo-apostles, or translated false apostles. Those who make claim to something that they aren't. And even though this word only comes up once in the New Testament, it's not the only time in the New Testament that this theme is brought up. Those who come into a church claiming to be apostles, but they're really not. In Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus, in the book of Revelation chapter 2, Paul said that, or, uh, Jesus said this to this church, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. So they did a good job, this church at Ephesus. Now he rebukes them for other stuff later, namely that they lost their first love. But something they did a good job in was testing people who claimed to be apostles and finding out that they were not. Did you know that even till today, there are people who claim to be apostles who are not? Even till today, there are people who will walk around saying they are apostles of Jesus Christ, like Warren Jeffs here, if you didn't catch that, this is Warren Jeffs' book. People who claim to be apostles, and they are not. They have to be put to the test, the test of God's Word. You you look at some of these people and you think, how could they ever convince anybody? Well, if you're not directed by the truth of the Word of God, if the truth of Christ isn't in you, you'll fall for lies. You'll fall for anything. Well, there are other pseudos in the New Testament, not just pseudo-apostles. Let me show you a couple more. Even in this same chapter, look down at verse 26 with me, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26. Paul says one of the, the burdens he's had to deal with, it says, are false brothers He says he's been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Those who maybe weren't claiming to be apostles, but they were claiming to be Christians, and they weren't. Even they have to be tested by the Word of God. Not only false apostles or false brothers but there are false prophets and false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, that apostle wrote, "...false prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you." Okay, stop right there. What promise did you just get from the Bible? There will be false teachers among Christians. And there's, there's an expiration date to that, praise God, the second coming of Jesus Christ when He slays His enemies with the breath of His mouth but we're not there yet. And so what do we have going on right now? The need for total discernment because there are false teachers. Keeps going. He says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. It's a very tragic reality, but it's a reality nonetheless, that not all within Christianity is as it seems. Not all Christian teachers are true teachers. Not all people who claim to be Christians are brothers and sisters, are actually brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not saying take up an attitude of, I'm going to go around and I'm going to be in charge of condemning somebody or exalting somebody. I'm going to be the arbiter of who's true and who's false. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, I'm saying keep your thinking cap on. There are wolves in the flock. Pastors have to especially be on guard for this because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, doesn't he? And pastors are to emulate that. We're not hired hands, we're shepherds. But among the sheep, among the flock, keep your eyes open out there. It's a messed up world out there. You can hear from all kinds of people on all sorts of venues Social media, YouTube, TikTok, internet websites, TV channels, whatever the case may be. You want Bible teaching, Christian teaching somewhere, you'll find it. It's not that hard. But you better be discerning. You have to go there with the Word of God in mind, with the Word of God in your heart. What's their Jesus? What's their gospel? What's their spirit that they're giving? We talked about these things last week. And if you're not thinking through these things, you might be consumed. And I do not want that for any of us. There are false apostles, false brothers, false teachers who are out there. There They're also deceitful workers, the text says. Not just false apostles, they're deceitful workers. That means they're frauds. They are those who are out to entrap other people for selfish gain. They dupe people to trap them in their lies so that they would get ahead in life. Apostle is the title they've taken, of course, but deceit is their work. They're deceiving people continually. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul was dealing with a similar thing there. And he says, "...it was because of the false brethren," so there we get that term again, false brothers, "...secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage." but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. False brothers sneak in, people who are not truly Christians. They sneak into congregations to enslave people. That's their goal is to enslave them to false teaching, to a system of works, to whatever the case may be, something that's anti-gospel, something that's a lie. They're like double agents They're like moles who sneak in to organizations to ruin it from the inside. They have to possess crafty stealth. Those wolves who are among the flock, they have to be wearing sheep's clothing. They have to be deceitful. So they're not just false, they're deceitful. And that's the point he makes next when he says they disguise themselves. Again, in verse 13, they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. When it comes to disguising yourself, this has to do with changing the outward appearance. That's really important to make a note of. It has to do with changing what is on the outside. Because that's all they can do, isn't it? All they can do is change what's on the outward appearance. And this is what Satan does. You remember that parable that Jesus told of the wheat and the tares? Who was sowing the tares? Who was sowing the weeds? Well, Satan was. And what can Satan do? Can he sow actual Christians who spring up and then defect from the faith? No, he can't. But Satan can sow imitators. Satan can sow those who are able to imitate Christians so that they look like Christians, so that they act like Christians, so that they say all the right things. They know when to bow their heads, they know when to stand up in the church service and when to sit down. They know all the words to all the songs. They know where stuff is in the Bible, but their heart is rotten. But they still have the blackness of sin in their hearts, and they're going through the motions. They're convincing people around them that they're Christians when they've never been changed. These false apostles could only change the outside. This reminded me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside, or but inside rather, they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. These false apostles, like many false brothers down through history, have just met man-made standards of appearing godly, of appearing to be Christian of appearing righteous. There are a lot of people out there who will point to a false apostle or someone who says he's a Christian who he's not, and they'll say, oh, that person is just so holy, or that person, I can never be as righteous as that person. That person might be an imitator. That person may have you duped because that person speaks in a certain way because that person dresses in a certain way, because that person abstains from certain activities, or does this or does that, is it truly godly? Is it truly based on the Word of God? Is it done from the heart? Is the inside of the cup cleansed? Is there a new root that's bringing about fruits of righteousness? Or is this just an imitation game? See how we have to be discerning? Not for the sake of playing God and condemning people, but for those who have influence over us, we need to check our standards. We may be duped by someone who disguises himself. Have you ever noticed uh, there are certain sales people that use the same tactics as other sales people? You just kind of start seeing it over and over again, and you're like, wait a second, I know this game. Or perhaps there are certain members of different religions who want to talk to you, and it's almost like, okay, you've been trained to talk that way or say that or whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm sensing a pattern here that you're just not being real with me. Well, there are a lot of false teachers out there who aren't real with you. They're disguising themselves. They've learned to talk the talk. They've learned to do their best to walk the walk, but inside they're full of dead men's bones, right? We have to be discer- discerning and look for the substance of what's going on. It's much easier for people to fake godliness than to live it, isn't it? Well, let's look at verses 14 and 15 as we wrap up. On the heels of that statement, Paul says, Well, it's no wonder this happens. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul is saying here, don't be astonished by this. The the devil himself does such a thing. He's an imitator. That's what he does. And so his servants are simply imitating him as he imitates righteousness. This is a unique reference in the Bible to Satan's work of disguising himself. This is like a a unique description of what Satan does, disguising himself as an angel of light. But I want to take us back to Ezekiel, where Satan's original state is described. This is back in Ezekiel 28. There are two passages in the Old Testament that describe Satan's original state. It's Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And in Ezekiel 28, starting at verse 14... Listen to how Satan was described before he fell. Before he sinned. Ezekiel 28:14 says, "You were the anointed cherub who covers." A, a cherub is a type of angel, okay? That's what that means. So, you were an anointed angel. And I placed you there," God speaking. "You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire." You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Did Satan have familiarity with righteousness? Yes. Or with beauty or with splendor? Well, yes, absolutely he did. He experienced those things. He was around those things. He was in beauty. It says in Ezekiel 28 that he had the seal of perfection, That he was full of wisdom. He was full of beauty. He experienced beautiful righteousness, you could say. And now, though he's fallen, he can still imitate those things. He cannot be an angel anymore. He's a demon. He's a fallen angel. But he can imitate angels. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. And instead of being full of wisdom and beauty. He's now the father of lies, isn't he? And let me tell you something. Jesus didn't die for Satan. There's no redemption for Satan. Jesus didn't die for angels. It is not angels whom he helps, it says in Hebrews chapter 2. But he helps those who are made in God's image, human beings. So Satan cannot be redeemed. What can he do now as the father of lies? He can only bring you down with him. That's all he's got. There's no redemption for Satan. There's no singing God's praises for Satan. There's only destruction, and He can only bring you down too. So His servants are those that He's brought down with Him, and they disguise themselves, as He does, as servants of righteousness, though they are actually servants of Satan. I do want to make a note here as we wrap up. Servants of Satan are rarely cognizant, truly, of what they're doing. Now, they're guilty, they're responsible for what they're doing, but they've been fooled, haven't they? They've been bewitched by Satan himself. And so perhaps maybe you're sitting here thinking about some people that you know that I or our church would call a false teacher and think, but he's so sweet, or she's so sweet, she's so nice. How could such a nice person be a servant of Satan? It's because nice isn't the standard, is it? Nice isn't the standard. You can be sweet. You can be helpful. You can even be a good neighbor in a lot of ways. That does not mean you know the Lord. That does not mean you've heard the truth or come to know the truth. That is an effect of God's common grace, that even though all of the world guilty in its sin, there are still good things that happen. God causes the sun to rise on the just and on the unjust. He sends His rain on the just and on the unjust. He allows people to experience His grace. He allows people to still reflect the image of God in the way that they show kindness toward other people. All of that still happens. While someone could still be truly a servant of our enemy. It's difficult to think about, but it's true. Just because someone's kind or nice, that does not make that person safe. That person needs the gospel just like anybody else needs the gospel. The true test will always be which Jesus, which gospel, what's the spirit here? That always has to be the test. And we discern who we listen to based on those truths, not on how we feel. Not on how we feel. Let me press this home a little further. Not enough of you have closed your Bibles yet to make me stop. Um, There there will be people who visit our church and they'll say things like, that felt good. I felt the Spirit. Um, It gave me a good feeling when I was there. A whole bunch of feeling language. Is that wrong? No. But is that enough? Absolutely not. I want you to feel good when you're here, okay? (laughs) Now let me make that clear. I want you to feel good. I want you to feel welcome. I want you to feel loved. There's got to be more than that. There has to be truth here too. Because it's not just about love, it's about truth and love. And and true love actually stems from the truth, doesn't it? Because eventually, if you're feeling good, if you're feeling love somewhere and there's no truth, that love's going to run out, baby. You're going to hit the end of that. People will turn on you. But where there's truth, there can be true, lasting, loving relationships rooted in God. Doctrine is critical to this. Which Jesus? Which gospel? 1 John chapter 4, we read this Wednesday night. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. The apostle John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, false prophets. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is that is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen to that. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, And the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who's the us here? Well, John's talking about, I think, the apostles who wrote the New Testament, the true apostles of God, and those who uphold the teaching that comes from God in His Word. And so it's about truth and error based on the Word of God, isn't it? We don't discern or test the spirits based on our guts. Your gut is a bad standard, okay? Some of your guts are saying, he should stop preaching, I'm hungry. <laughs> and it's not time yet. <laughs> okay? It's about what's true and what is false. Okay, final thing. The promise is their end will be according to their deeds. Satan and his servants, their end will be according to their deeds. What does that mean? God will destroy Satan and his servants. And you know, you want to hear something amazing? He's going to crush them underneath our feet. Romans sixteen 20, I'll finish with this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are the ultimate victor. We thank You that there is victory for Your people in the finished work of Christ, that we can declare victory over the satanic realm, over any servant of Satan that would seek to entice us. We can declare the truth of Christ and His victory over them. Thank You so much, God, that You've chosen to save us by Your grace and to love us, to be faithful as we walk through this life seeking to serve you. Give us discerning minds. Help us to understand what is true and what is false, that you would be honored in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we live. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.